So we are uh, in the book of Job. Been a lot of hospitalizations and sickness, and uh, now several people have asked, is this because we're going through Job? And it may be, I don't know. Um, so I guess apologies for the next three months. Uh, not sure how all that is going to work. Um, but uh, we are going to keep going. So uh, we are going to do four chapters in the book of Job today, Job 4 through 7. Obviously, I'm not going to read it all, um, but we are going to go through uh, parts of it as we go through the sermon. And uh, you'll see that we'll sort of project uh, the verses as we go. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again to the book of Job this morning to learn more about how to deal with our own suffering and how to deal with the suffering of others. And Lord, sometimes we just don't know what to say. We don't think our presence is enough, so we don't go. We don't say anything. We don't bring much comfort. So teach us what comfort is and why it's important and how we can do it. Keep us from being miserable comforters. So please build our faith and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Now, if the book of Job were going to be made into a TV series, uh, I have discovered the perfect corporate sponsor uh, for that. It's called Despair Inc. You can find it at despair.com. Uh, this company declares that it, quote, proudly profits on the negative in all of us. Despair Inc. advertises a host of profoundly depressing products. Uh, you might want the pessimist's mug. It's a crystal clear mug with a line at the halfway point, and it's emblazoned with the words, the glass is half empty, deal with it. You might also like their demotivational posters. You've seen motivational posters suitable for framing beautiful pictures as uplifting themes like shoot for the moon, even if you missed, you'll land among the stars. And of course, you get motivated every time you see one of those. These are a little different. So this one says, despair, it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> or this one, <laughs> defeat, for every winner, there are dozens of losers. <laughs> Odds are you're one of them. <laughs> or procrastination, I kind of like this one. Hard work often pays off over time, but laziness pays off now. <laughs> Here's one fits the book of Job pretty well. Challenges. I expected times like this, but I never thought they'd be so bad and so long and so frequent. And then there's this one, my personal favorite. It's a picture of a cruise ship that's sinking. Immediately you think Titanic. And at the top of the poster, appropriate for this week's sermon, it says, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. So, now you're demotivated. In these four chapters of Job, we're going to consider some friends who show up on the scene and who come to comfort Job in his suffering. And they make a lot of mistakes. And it could be, and I think it's likely, that their primary purpose in this book is to serve as a warning to others. So let's see how we can learn from their mistakes. First, we have to recognize that these are Job's friends. We're going to jump back to chapter 2, very end of chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. These are Job's friends. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. 
And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So before we get too far down the road in criticizing these three men, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, we first have to appreciate their good intentions. They are real friends of Job. And when they first heard about all his uh, troubles, they've set out to comfort him. And when they see him, they're um, overwhelmed, and so they join in his grief. These are the comforters. And it's actually a role that people have in the ancient Near East when there's a tragedy or or somebody is grieving. And it's the role of the comforters to do two things. One, to provide emotional support, but also to help bring the grieving person back to the society of the living. And so we don't know how long Job has been grieving, but when they arrive, they demonstrate their concern simply by sitting with Job in silence. So far, so good. There are times when words fail. There are times when silence is the best therapy. The problem comes when they break their silence and start to speak. Now, notice it's Job, not the friends who talk first. And what they heard from him was quite disturbing, to say the least. As we saw uh, last week, Job opened his mouth and sung a loud, long lament. And Job insinuates that everything that happened to him is uh, God's fault and that he doesn't deserve any of it. And he says back in chapter 3, verse 23, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? The same God who back in chapter 1, verse 10, said put a hedge around him to protect him. But he's now hedged him in to afflict him. And Job claims to be suffering for no reason, and God's responsible. And apparently that shook his friends up pretty good. And uh, based on the emails I got this week, it shook up a few of you as well. And so all of this uh, long lament and blaming of God has provoked Job's friends. So they decide to talk to him. They're going to talk some sense into him. They, they just can't let that it's all God's fault comment kind of go unchallenged. And so begins this lengthy war of words with this broken man who's resisting their efforts to comfort him. Sometimes it's great to have friends there when you're hurting. Sometimes it's not. Especially when they say dumb things or hurtful things or even true things which bring no comfort. When we're really hurting Being given reasons for the pain doesn't usually help a whole lot. And that's the situation here. Now, uh, despite how we've put it in the bulletin and it will be on the screen, this dialogue is in a highly stylized literary form. It's written in poetry rather than prose. And it's a very orderly exchange. Unlike our political debates, None of the speakers interrupt the others. Each speaks in turn, uh, finishing their speech before the next speaker begins. And there's going to be three cycles of speeches. And they each speak in the same order. You can imagine something like this taking place in the Senate. This is no ordinary argument. Uh, And actually, it reads something like a script for a theater production. And though each of the friends comes from a different place and they come at Job from a different angle, there is common agreement among them. And so it's three against one. And we get the impression that the three friends represent the consensus view. So Job's in the minority. In fact, he stands alone. It's Job against the world, and the friends are piling on. Job's friends see themselves as the heirs of the wisdom of their ancestors gained from carefully observing the human condition. And so this wisdom gives them confidence that they actually understand the way that God works in the world. And their fundamental conviction is simple. God is just. He's always just, and he'll always be 
just. Now, in theological terms, that's called the principle of retributive justice. In other words, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And God will see to it that people get what they deserve. How could he do otherwise and still be just? If you fear God, you'll be blessed. If you sin, you'll suffer. And it goes to reason that if you are blessed, it must be because you fear God. And if you are suffering, it must be because you've sinned. And they think this must be true because God is just. And these three wise friends recognize this and live accordingly uh, to that. They all insist on this principle of God's retributive justice. And the reality is, Job believes it too. The difference between Job and the friends is the conclusions they draw. The friends look at Job's suffering and determine there must have been some sin in his life to cause such pain. What else could it be? Job, on the other hand, is pretty sure he hasn't sinned, or at least not to any degree that merits the treatment he's received, so that God is treating him unjustly. At the very least, something is fundamentally wrong with how God's running the world, and Job wants to find out what God's up to. And that's the gist of it. And they're going to go back and forth making their case for the next 24 chapters. And in the end, neither side will have budged an inch. Again, a lot like the Senate. So, four long chapters. We don't have time to read it all. We're going to take some selected verses that will give you the sense of the whole. But I do encourage you to read it all. It's fascinating. So let's see what they have to say. Starting, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 first with Eliphaz's counsel. Eliphaz's counsel, that's the next blank uh, there. And Eliphaz speaks first in these three cycles of speeches. And here is the man from Taman in Edom. It's renowned for his wisdom. Eliphaz is the senior friend. He's named first among the three. And uh, at the end of the book, he's summoned by the Lord as the representative of all three. And he initially, he speaks kindly and courteously, uh, deferentially, sensitively, as best as he can. So starting at chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. So Eliphaz, he's not pushy, he's not aggressive, he's very respectful. He compliments Job on the past. He says, you've instructed many. He seeks to sort of come alongside Job. Sort of has this whole sense of uh, being, uh, having a lot of empathy, kind of, if, if I were you... And so we're off to a good start. But then comes verses 5 and 6. And sort of there's a jab in here. It's kind of a physician heal thyself uh, sort of jab. And he says, but now it has come to you. What is the it? This is the weak hands and feeble knees, the stumbling. Essentially, the suffering has come to you. And you are impatient. It touches you. The suffering touches you. And you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? And then he gets right to the point. God is just, so Job, deal with it. Despair, ink. Starting verse 7. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So essentially, that's how the world works. Just look around, you'll see it's true. You reap what you sow. God works out his just ways in the world. The wicked may prosper for a while, but it doesn't last. Suddenly, hardship will overtake them. So now we're going to move on to chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. It says... For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. 
but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Essentially saying, Job, suffering comes from the hands of a just God. It's just the way it is. We go down chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. This is actually very interesting because Eliphaz says that God catches the wise in their craftiness in verse 13. That verse is the one explicit citation of Job found in all of the New Testament. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think there's something sort of deliciously appropriate about the Apostle Paul citing Eliphaz's own words about the wise being caught in their craftiness, given that the book of Job is demonstrating the inadequacy of Eliphaz's wisdom. Paul could have hardly found better support for the point that he's using this verse to support. It's 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 and 19. It says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So the Apostle Paul is quoting Job. He says, there are those who are wise like Eliphaz and they are reaching beyond themselves. The wisdom of Eliphaz and his friends is going to be turned into foolishness by God. And actually, the foolish things that Job is going to say will at the end of the day be filled with surprising gospel wisdom. And then Eliphaz finishes his speech, his exhortation at the end of chapter 5, verse 18. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death, and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and you shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. Remember, Job's lost all of his children, ten of them. He says, you shall come to your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your own good. So you're complaining, Job. You just need to apply this wisdom to your situation and you're going to be restored. And that's the counsel of Eliphaz, chapters 4 and 5. Comforted? Not really. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. People get what they deserve. Job, if you suffer, it must be because you've sinned, so stop sinning, and all's well that ends well. I feel better already. Not really, and not Job either. And so he responds to his friends in the next two chapters, 6 and 7, with frustration. So we see Job 6 and 7, Job's frustration. We begin now the first of Job's Eight speeches in these three cycles of debate with his friends. Job's words will take up 14 chapters in our English Bibles. And so as we begin, we're going to watch as a true worshiper of God is slowly revealed. We will see some surprising marks of a real believer uh, unveiled. And these are going to cut right across all of our instincts about religion. The hallmarks of a true worshiper will at times appear to be utterly contradictory to what we expect. Now, you also need to know that sometimes Job is speaking to his friends and sometimes he's speaking to God. And it's not always easy to know which part is which. Um, And sometimes it doesn't matter. He speaks for all to hear. Sometimes it's clear Uh, When the Hebrew verbs are in the plural, he's addressing his three friends. 
when they're in the singular, he's addressing God. And so in this speech, he starts by addressing his friends, and then towards the end, he will direct his speech to God. So earlier, Eliphaz said, he, he sort of used the term vexation very negatively, and he said that's kind of an angry speech that marks out a man as a fool and condemns him by his own words. It's not the way wise people speak. Wise people have a clear and logical system by which to understand the world. They don't get all hot and bothered by what they think is innocent suffering because they don't think there's any such thing. And Job replies that his troubled outburst, that long lament of chapter 3, far from showing him to be a fool, is actually a natural response to the depth and weight of his misery, and that his speech is revealing his misery, not his folly. And so we feel the force of his first reply, starting at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, then Job answered and said, oh, that my vexation, this is a dig at Eliphaz, who basically said, if you're vexation, you're messing up, you're doing it wrong. He goes, oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. If we're to put it in modern terms, Job's saying, if you could take all the miserable unfairness that it's caused my anger, if you could bottle up all the calamity that has uh, fallen on me, if you could put them on some kind of machine that weighed human pain, you would find it heavier than the sand of the sea. Which prepares us for verse 4, which gives us the root cause or the reason why Job's hurting so much. He says, For the arrow of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. If you want to know the cause of my pain, it's not because I've lost my wealth, not because I've lost my greatness and my powers come to an end. It's not even because I've been bereaved of my children. It's because the almighty God who controls everything in the universe has been firing poisoned arrows at me. That's a pretty bold claim to make against God. And now Job's been hoping for pity and sympathy and comfort from his friends. And so far, what he's gotten has been essentially an insipid explanation of what's happened. And so he says, what is really unbearable is to suffer the wrath of God and then have you show up with neat and tidy religious explanations. And he just can't take it anymore. And so once again, as we saw back in chapter 3, here in um, uh, verse 8, he hopes for death again. He says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. We're going to come back to those verses. See, it doesn't occur to Job to take his own life. He knows that life is God's to give and God's to take. And he understands the only reason he's still alive is that God has stayed his hand. So he longs that it would please God to crush him. That's a violent request. It speaks of a life being turned back to dust. And there's an urgency to his prayer. He's weak, he has little strength, and uh, as with most people, when there's a real weakness, there's a psychological fragility. And so to hold on and not curse God, he thinks he needs to be strong. He says, as strong as stone or bronze, and he knows he's not. Look at verse 11. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? That is, there's a time when I could do things and succeed at them and I had these inner resources, but no more. It's just, 
a case of desperately trying to hang on to being faithful to God in the midst of a desperate weakness, if only my suffering would come to an end. But Job has a lot more to say. He's not done speaking. So the rest of chapter 6, he sadly rebukes them for being so disappointing. Jump down to verses 22 and 23. He, he's, this is a, a rebuke to his friends. He said, have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? He's saying, uh, Job says, his hopes aren't demanding. They're not selfish. He hasn't asked them for money. He hasn't asked them to do anything. All he wants is words that will unlock his bewilderment and settle his anxiety. And so we go down to verse 24. He says, teach me, and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? In other words, tell me where I've gone wrong because I can't see that I have. Your words might hurt, but in the end, they'll do me good if they're true and if they're upright. But the words you're speaking don't prove anything. You're not taking me seriously when you try to impose your clean and neat and tidy and simple system of religion on my pain. And then he goes on, verse 27. If you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend, but now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Basically, he's accusing them. You don't really love me. I'm just a pawn in your religious discussions. It's like you're playing a game with me, rolling dice, tossing the problem of Job to and fro as you sip your cold-brewed coffee in comfort. Just look me in the eyes and listen to me. Take me seriously. I'm speaking the truth. And chapter 6 closes with this challenge. And then in a hugely significant move, Job turns, and now he addresses God in chapter 7. He's always loved God. He's always feared God. He is a true believer. He's never doubted the sovereignty of God. He knows the hedge around him has been put in place by God. But up to now, he hasn't explicitly spoken to God. And now he does. And chapter 7 is a protest. We can sum up Job's protest with a question and a plea. The first half of the chapter is the question, why do I matter? And the second half is the plea, leave me alone. We prayed earlier this morning in our responsive reading that God would forsake me not. Job's prayer is forsake me. It's the opposite of what we said at the beginning of our service. So let's look at chapter 7. The very beginning, he compares himself to conscripted labor. He says, Has not a man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So that word translated hard service in verse 1 refers to military service or conscripted slave labor. So, and he says such uh, conscripted labor, this is like uh, servitude. Um, He says they long for the shadows, the shadows of the evening, because then there's rest and there's wages. In the same way, Job longs for the shadows, but he longs for the shadows of death. In the meantime, his life has no dignity, no rest, no joy, no hope, It just goes on and on. He speaks of months of emptiness. This is no short-lived crisis. This is enduring pain. And then he laments that he's completely insignificant. He's essentially a non-person with a one-way ticket to nowhere. Big up in verses 7 to 10. He says, remember that my life is a breath. 
My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, and nor does his place know him anymore. So everybody thought Job was one of the, the great men of his time. He's a man of substance. He was doing things that would endure. And now he's saying, they're all wrong. I'm just a cloud. It just takes a little wind to disperse me, and I'll fade away and vanish. And because there seems to be no answer from heaven, Job makes this desperate plea to be forsaken by God. In essence, he says to God, leave me alone. Starting at verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning. Test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me and leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie on the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Precisely because there is this terrible tension between his convictions what he believes, and his experience. And Job says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth, which is exactly what Eliphaz and his friends want him to do. Much of their counsel is basically, suck it up and deal with it, which I may have said once or twice in my life to somebody. But he says, I will speak. In the anguish of my spirit, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And it's actually one of the strange signs of hope for Job is that he must speak. And it is precisely by speaking that Job will argue and persuade and almost preach his way towards the truth. And it sets this scene. It's a terrible picture of God that he is painting. He says he's a watcher from whom Job can't escape. And even if he manages to get to sleep, he can't escape. Verses 13 to 16 says he goes to bed thinking he can get rest and God sends nightmares. And the pressure is unbearable. To the point he says he'd rather be strangled to death. He loathes his life. He pleads with God three times, leave me alone. I am but a breath. My days are a breath. My life is a breath. And it hurts so much he'd rather be strangled. And he says, if I'm so insignificant to you as I appear to be, why will you not just leave me alone? And then at the very end he says, and it's sort of going back to what his friends have said, and if I have sinned, why don't you just forgive me? Remember, Job's a repentant sinner. He understands sacrifice. He believes in a God who forgives those who repent and believe. And he knows, and he's right, that he shouldn't be punished for his sins since sacrifices have taken away his sin, or so he's been led to believe. Job's beginning to drive towards the truth. But it's a truth that will only be revealed in Jesus, that one day a man will come who will fulfill the sufferings of Job, and when he does, he'll suffer not for his own sins, but for the sins of all who trust in him. And thus ends the first debate. And it leaves us with a couple of questions. First, what can we learn here? What can we learn? Friends are unimpressed with Job. Job's not exactly filled with gratitude for them either. They have this mutual frustration society. And first of all, we have to realize that Job's friends do actually speak the truth. God is just. 
And the Bible throughout affirms his retributive justice. We can find that theme throughout the Old Testament. Most prominent at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30. Uh, Moses speaks of it. He says, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curses. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. People get what they deserve. And God's retributive justice is found, again, lots of places in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, Paul affirms it in no uncertain terms. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So it's true. God is just, and he acts justly. God acts according to retributive justice. But at the end of the book of Job, God will declare to these friends and directly to Eliphaz that they have not spoken what is right, as his servant Job has. So what's wrong with what they've said? Well, first, the friends of Job are rebuked by God because although they speak the truth, it's not the whole truth. While it's true that God never acts unjustly, it's also true that God does not always exercise his justice in immediate and recognizable ways. There's also no promise that God's going to exercise his justice on your behalf, in your lifetime. There is no simple moral equation that dictates how this principle of retributive justice has to be applied. Suffering can come in the form of discipline. Even Eliphaz recognizes that. Sometimes God uses suffering to teach us. Sometimes God uses suffering to magnify his own glory. You remember the story, John 9, Jesus sees a man born blind, and the disciples assume the principle of retributive justice. They, you know, you get what you deserve. So they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Getting what you deserve is not the whole truth. And think about it with me. If we had a strict legalistic application of this principle of retributive justice, there could never be grace. It just doesn't fit. Because grace is never deserved. Second thing we learn is that truth can be misapplied. You can say true things and then use that truth in the wrong way. And that's what happens here. They're giving Job what he doesn't need and what he doesn't want. Job's in abject despair, and good reason. He's lost everything that he valued. His property, his position, his health, his family, it's all been taken away. And to his eyes, God's nowhere to be found. And he speaks out of the anguish of his heart. He is suffering. He's in despair. And his friends show up. And it's like they're in a theology classroom. The friends are rationalizing rather than sympathizing. They speak, if you remember the analogy, from the detached security of the academic armchair while Job is writhing in pain in the sufferer's wheelchair. Dr. Christopher Ashe wrote one of the great commentaries on Job, says, true words may be thin medicine for a man in the depths. Their insistence that their truth applies to Job's situation only makes the situation worse. 
And Job is going to come to call him, and what's a famous line? He calls them miserable comforters. Have you ever had the experience of having a well-meaning friend give you kind advice that didn't help at all? Maybe straightforward advice, exactly the kind that you would have given him, but it brings no comfort to you. Or perhaps you've been, like I have, on the other side as the one giving what you think is wise and discerning counsel, only to find it rejected as unhelpful. Whichever side of this exchange you've been on, the experience leaves a lot to be desired. It points to a deeper problem that's undiagnosed by the counselor and unrecognized by the sufferer. And so as a foil to Job, appears these friends' sole purpose in this book is to serve as a warning to us. Which brings us then to the second question is, so what do I do? If I don't do what Job's friends do, what do I do? Well, I'm going to suggest four things uh, to avoid being a miserable comforter. Uh, Because it is inevitable, for many of you it has happened many times, for those of you it hasn't happened, it will. You will have to comfort a suffering person. Could be a family member, could be a friend, could be somebody you don't really know. But if some reason or another, the Lord has dropped somebody in front of you who's suffering. No idea why. First thing, be patient. Be sensitive and be patient. Be attentive to the emotional stages the grieving people go through. They could be in shock or denial or anger or depression or all of them together. Recognize that suffering people sometimes say things they wish they hadn't said. They say things that they would never say in rational moments when they're not suffering. And that's okay. Just be patient with them. Let it just roll off. This is not the time for a theology lecture. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, the single best thing you can do is simply show up. Our presence, our listening, and our tears mean more than we know. Dr. John Feinberg is a uh, well-known theologian, scholar, who wrote a book on the problem of suffering and evil, and it was very academic, very helpful. And then his wife got a horrible, incurable disease, and he had to take uh, basically a whole year off just to care for her and essentially just watched her die. There was no cure, and it was horrible. And he went back to read his book, and he said it didn't help at all. So he wrote a second book. And the second book is called No Easy Answers. And he has some suggestions in there when you're visiting somebody who's really suffering. He says, one, don't minimize their pain. Don't glibly quote Bible verses. And being, be very careful of saying, I know how you feel. He says it's probably not true, and it probably doesn't matter. And that person doesn't want to know how you feel. They want to know that you care. So that's the first thing. Be patient. Be sensitive. Second, be humble. Don't presume that you know more than you do. Job's friends thought they knew why Job was suffering. And they're wrong. And the truth is, unless God's called you to be a prophet, none of us know the mind of God in these matters. And we can't judge others based on the fact that they're suffering. And the reality is often we don't visit people who are suffering terribly because we don't know what to say. You don't have to know what to say. And you can admit that. When I was an intern, uh, before I got ordained as a minister, the opportunity to go with a pastor, a pastor of my home church in South Carolina. This guy was an amazing pastor, probably not the greatest preacher, but amazing pastor. He was my model of what a pastor should be. He said, come with me to the hospital. We're going to visit a guy, and this guy's dying, and just come with me. You can see this. And I'm like, this is going to be great because he's the best in the world at doing this kind of thing. I'm going to learn so much. 
And so we go there and visit, and this guy's name was George, and George was amazing. He had all the right things to say, the perfect touch. It was wonderful. And we walk out afterwards, we pray for him and everything, and we walk out, we're walking down the hall, and George just looks at him and goes, I never know what to say in those situations. I was like, oh no, you're like my model of what to say. He's like, yeah, I, am, I have no idea. And I was like, oh. Sometimes you don't know what to say. How much more helpful would Job's friends have been if they just said that, I don't know what to say, and didn't presume to know more than they did. Be humble. Don't presume you fully understand the situation. Third, be practical. Now, there's different ways to be practical. Sometimes it can mean acting to protect somebody. Sometimes people are suffering because they've been abused of some time, and they don't need just a shoulder to cry on. They need someone to call the police. But more broadly, often suffering, people just need practical help. You've probably said, and I know I have, if there's anything I can do, don't hesitate to call. And that expresses a helping heart, but it just puts the burden back on the person who's suffering. Much better is thinking of something that needs to be done and then doing it, or at least asking if you can do it, uh, bringing over a meal, picking up groceries, taking the kids to practice, little things that say you care. Offer hope for the future, but practically just help people live one day at a time. And finally, be prayerful. So be patient, be humble, be practical, be prayerful. The central message of this dialogue with the friends, and the whole book, is that in the end, only God himself can bring comfort to Job. The problem of suffering is ultimately intensely personal because we wonder if God really cares. And so God can use us as instruments of his love, but we can't give people who suffer what they need the most. And that's why we have to point them to the love of God because they need God more than they need us. So point people to a God who cares, the God who in his son Jesus Christ has drawn near to them and in fact shares in their suffering. Jesus is the high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses for he's been tempted in every way just as we are, Hebrews 4. And in his suffering, he even asks our question, why? Only one human being in history is greater than Job and only one person suffers more intensely than Job. And so Job's experience can only be understood in the light of the cross. Christian suffering is in large part a taking up of the cross, a sharing in unjust suffering, a participation in the sufferings of Christ in order that glory and honor can be brought to God on the day of Christ Jesus. Without the cross of Christ, Job can't be fully comprehended. And this is Eliphaz's mistake he and his friends give us the best wisdom the world can offer. The best wisdom that comes to them from morality and human knowledge. But without the cross, it makes no sense. In the context of the whole Bible, the deepest error of these friends is they have no place for innocent suffering. They think if the righteous were to suffer, it would be a blot on the moral landscape. Eliphaz even asked that question way back at the beginning in Job 4, verse 7. Who that was innocent ever perished? And against that question, the Bible places a large eternal cross. And the reason is that only the gospel of the cross of Christ ultimately makes sense of suffering. A world in which there is no redemptive suffering, suffering that brings glory to God, a world in it is, becomes a world in which there's no comfort for a suffering believer. It's a world without grace. And in the end, it's a world without love. And human wisdom imposes on us a framework of simple cause and effect, which there can be no such thing as suffering that simply brings glory to God. No such thing as suffering that expresses obedience of a believer who bows down to God simply because he's God. And yet it's precisely that kind of obedience, the obedience of the one man, as Romans 5.19 says, that brings redemption to all of the saints. 
The suffering of Job foreshadows the redemptive suffering of Jesus. Remember, Job prays to be crushed. But he doesn't get crushed. Jesus gets crushed. Job prays to be forsaken. But he doesn't get forsaken. Jesus gets forsaken. On the cross, the innocent one perished in the place of the guilty that we may not perish. And so in a profound sense, the suffering of Job is the cost of grace. To be more accurate, the sufferings of Job foreshadow the cost of grace. The sufferings of Job, uh, terrible as they are, are a foreshadowing of the sufferings of the one who will be. Isaiah 53, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Job points us to Jesus. We need to stop and thank God for that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and confess our failure to be good comforters. We know neither how to be patient or practical, humble or prayerful, and we let each other down way more than we'd ever want to admit. Sometimes when we need each other the most. So Lord, please forgive us. Lord, if anyone here this morning is overwhelmed by suffering, let us draw near to them so that they can draw near to you and receive your grace. For your grace is what we all so desperately need. And so continue to work in our hearts this winter as we learn from a man called Job and draw us ever closer to the one who is crushed for our iniquities, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.